Oh, yeah. Let's go. That was sweet. Like that, that was incredible. That was amazing. Good job, people who put that together. Pretty sure it's our intern. Hello. <laughs> my name is Ben. I am the, I forgot my title, Multiplication and Networking Pastor here at Grace Point. I changed titles, as you guys heard about a couple weeks ago. Um, but I still, because I, Brennan can't kick me out of Oasis. It's just not possible. I'm going to be here forever. I'm not joking about that. I'm going to be here forever. Even Pat, when I die, I will still be here somehow. I don't theologically believe that that's actually a thing or possible because I'll be with Jesus, but I'll always be a part of Oasis because of what it's done in my life. Week two of our framework series. And as Brennan said last week, this is a, as a man, it's been a while, guys. Holy moly. Um, it's a discipleship series. And what he talked about last week is we want to enter into this reality of a process of discipleship. And he defined it really, really well for us. It's not just a definition that we use for this series. It's one that we're going to take with us as we continue to pursue Jesus together. And discipleship is this. It's being spiritually formed into the image of Christ for the glory of God and the good of others. Write that down. Take a picture of it. Memorize it. This is what discipleship is. Spiritually formed to the image of Jesus for the glory of God and the sake of others. And so he defined it for us. But before we could actually talk about what it looks like to enter into this process, he told us and gave us this beautiful, in my mind, sermon of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Because we do not know how to enter into a discipleship process or moments if we don't know who we're following. And that person is Jesus. And he gave us a call of what it looks like to deny ourselves and to carry and pick up our cross in our faith, in our relationship with Jesus. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about the different levels of relationship that we have that are within our Christian life and Christian walk and within the church that help us enter into a process of discipleship. So go ahead, Shannon, throw up that, that pyramid. I don't know what, it's probably on the center screen. Maybe, maybe not. Oh, yes. Amazing. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to go through this content tool, which lays out the different levels of relationships where we can actually enter into being spiritually formed in the image of Christ for the glory of God and the sake of others. This week, I get to talk about private. Next week, Brennan is going to tackle personal and communal, and then we're going to hit congregational in the last week of the series. But before I get into this idea of, okay, what is the private aspect and level of relationship in, in the discipleship process of being a follower of Jesus, I think no matter what, in every level of these, in every step, in every way we pursue these different relationships that we have in our life that help us be spiritually formed in the image of Christ for the glory of God and sake of others, we have to have a mindset shift. And another way I'm going to talk about that is we have to have a certain posture in what it looks like in approaching these different levels and dimensions of discipleship, to enter into this process of being spiritually formed in the image of Christ for the glory of God and the sake of others. And why I believe that's so important is the posture that we take in relation to God reflects what we believe our purpose is. We, um, I've talked a little bit about this, but I was a part of church plant that moved to Minneapolis, me and my wife, and then the old, 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 old Oasis pastor, Old in reference, he was the Oasis pastor like four pastors ago, and he's just an old person. I love him to death. He's one of my favorite human beings alive. But he asked me to go plant a church with him in Minneapolis. 
And we got there and, and we went through this process of different stuff. And we lived in North Minneapolis. Me and my wife did in a parsonage with another couple. Really both awkward, weird, and awesome experience to like live with. And like, we both were like just newly wed. Not important to the story. But we lived in this house that was a parsonage, meaning it was owned by a ministry family. And they just let us live there. We paid a little rent, super cheap. But this house was on the corner uh, of, of the street and the alley. Okay. And our driveway was, you had to go into the alley and then immediately take a turn to go into the driveway. Well, one night, I, not even one night, one day, one morning, I worked at Minnesota Don't Teen Challenge. For, I had like three shifts from 2 to 11 p.m. And then I also was a youth pastor at our mother church uh, that was helping us plan a church. And so one morning, I, it was afternoon, I was going, I was getting ready to drive to Minnesota Don't Teen Challenge, do my shift. And, and I go and I have a two-door, I had a two-door Dodge Stratus at the time. I drive a Dodge Stratus. And I get into the car. Some of you got that joke, which I'm really, really proud of. Um, I get into the car and, and I sit down. I'm not a very detail-oriented person. I sit down and I feel the car is like tilted. And I feel it. I still, because I also like was a little bit in a rush, but also didn't like, I don't, I don't think before I act, I just do things. That's gotten me into trouble a little bit. I was going to start the car and just put it in reverse and go. But something told me, just wait, you're feeling tilted for a reason. The driveway all of a sudden overnight just didn't shift. And so I opened the door and I realized that the two left tires of my car had been stolen. And that side of the car was sitting on a cinder block. (laughs) I just, I was like, I was dumbfounded. And I don't even know if I know what that word means. I was confused. And so I called my wife saying, dude, this is what just happened. And it was really brilliant because they took the two tires that were facing the opposite of the street. So like you could hide between the two cars parked in the driveway and they got my tires and called the police. And they came and said, it was probably some youths of the neighborhood because it looked like they tried to break into your car, but they don't have enough experience because they weren't actually like, there's no way they could have broken into your car doing it this way. Here's how you do it. And they taught me how to like break into my car, which was <laughs> nerve wracking a little bit. And it was really easy to break into a dude or a Dodge Stratus 2004, just to let you know. And so these tires are stolen. It's like, I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like this, <laughs> this is a problem because me and my wife were poor. Like from the experiences that I had in my life to the point where me and Abby were living, we did not have money. So I had this goal in my mind and it's like, I changed a tire before. So I thought all I need to do is get two new tires. I got to get order some lug nuts online. I can do this myself because my goal was save money because we don't have any. My goal should have been safety, but we'll get to that. And so I ordered these lug nuts online. I called it. I actually called four different like shops that could get me tires and rims and got the cheapest ones because we had no money. My goal was save money. And so I went and I dropped my wife off at school. I'm driving her car. I go pick up the two new tires. The lug nuts had come in that I ordered online and I made sure to like look at the numbers. And this is where I went a little wrong. I ordered, <laughs> sorry. I ordered the right technical size lug nut but I ordered the cheapest available. Don't always do that. And here's why. I pick up the tires. I go home, lift the car up with the car jack, put the tires on. And as I'm tightening the lug nuts on the tire, it's harder to tighten than it should be. Then I remember what it feels like or like knows like to like actually put a tire on a car. But I get it enough to where it's like, okay, yeah, I can drive. Get them all on. 
And immediately after I get the, the tires on, lug nuts, and again, it felt just weird putting them on. I got them on, I, I shook the tire a little bit, and it didn't shake a lot, which should have been a warning, but it wasn't. And so I started driving. Where I was driving to was where I was a youth pastor at. And it's 15 minutes away. We had, I had to take an interstate and then a highway to get to, I was living in North Minneapolis, I had to get to Blaine, which is North Metro. And so I get on the interstate, drive, and it feels great. Like, I feel accomplished. Like, I feel good that I got something, right? Like, I got something done. I feel great. I save money. Crush. Drive in, and all of a sudden, I, I exit off the interstate and get onto the highway that I need to go. I'm four minutes away from the church. And all of a sudden, I hear this loud, like, noise, like a rock hit my car. And I look around like I'm driving. I was like, what just hit my car? And I'm looking for the semi with the rocks in it, right? Assuming that a rock hit my car. And I don't see anything. It's like, all right, I'm fine. I'm dry. I feel the car. It feels normal. I keep driving about like 30 seconds later. Another just loud noise. Super loud noise. I was like, man, that, that's something. What is around me that's happening? I go and I get into getting ready to pull into the church parking lot. And all of a sudden, as I turn to go into the church parking lot, my car starts to wobble. And as I turn into the church parking lot, my left front tire falls off. By the grace of God, <laughs> I made it to the church and it didn't fly off going 65 on the interstate. What happened was, because my goal was saving money and not safety, I had the mindset, well, I can do this. It's just changing tires. So I took the posture of a mechanic and I know nothing about cars. Our posture tends to dictate and indicate what we believe our goal or purpose is. And I think we do this in our relationship and in relation to how we view our private relationship with God. So what's your posture? There's a book uh, called With by Sky Jathani that talks about five different postures that we as Christians tend to take. And I'm gonna talk about one, and it's a lot on this one of the why this is important, on what this looks like. I probably should spend more time on how to do this than I'm going to, but that's okay. I really believe in what, what God has led me to talk to you guys about. So what's your posture? As I go through these five different ones, what posture do you tend to take? Do you take a posture of a life from, whoops, of a life from God? People in this category want God's blessing and gifts, but they're not particularly interested in actually God himself. And it's not just outside the church, it's in the church. This is the CEO who's run a business who gives the glory to God for the blessing of his business succeeding and wants it to continue. These, the people from a life from God assume the world revolves around themselves and their own desires. Life, I can't draw people, so we're just going to do some stick people. A life from God. Do you take a posture of a life over God? This is where you, the mystery and the wonder of the world is lost as God is abandoned in favor of proven formulas and controllable outcomes. It's not, again, just outside of the church. It's not just an atheist or believer thing. It's not just, well, science is proven. I can control the outcome. We can test things. This happens in the church. This is where I pursue self-help books before I pursue prayer. This is me in moments as a pastor where I have allowed or leaned on a specific formula for church growth than the power of the Holy Spirit. 
It's followers of Jesus who take pride in thinking, I can overcome that temptation by myself, when the reality is the victory only actually comes from Jesus. And again, some of those things aren't bad. Some of the self-help stuff is actually really, really great. But sometimes we need more than just a couple of steps on how to pursue a relationship with God. What posture do you take? Or do you take, again, this is going to sound crazy, a life for God, which believes that the most significant life is the one spent accomplishing great things in God's service. Again, hear what I said there. Believes that the most significant life is the one spent accomplishing great things in God's service. This is the follower of Jesus who takes the great commission but forgets the great commandment. The great commission is a great thing. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's good. But the person that takes a posture of a life for God says the only thing that's important is that we make disciples. The only thing that's important is that I use my gift of prophecy. If you were here this morning, you heard Pastor Aaron talk about defining love and he read 1 Corinthians 13. And it talked about even if you speak in the angel or the tongue of angels, even if you prophesy but do it without love, you are annoying like a clashing symbol. This is a person that says, I'm pursuing a life of purpose, accomplishing things for God, but I've lost love along the way. Again, that's a good thing, right? The Great Commission is not a bad thing, but it's not the most significant. We still need to do it, not most significant. Or do you take the posture of a life under God? This posture is one that sees God in simple cause and effect terms. We obey his commands and he blesses us, our families and our country. The primary role is to figure out what God approves of and or disapproves of and then live within those boundaries. It's legalistic. It's more about rules and rituals than relationship. Again, commandments and rules of what God gives us and how to live life are good. But they're not the most significant. Which posture do you take? There's a more beautiful vision of the life that God has given us. There's a different posture that Jesus invites us into. And that's one of a life with God. This life with God is revealed to us in John 1. So if you have scripture, you can open up your Bible. You can open up your phone. And immediately we see... In John 1, it talks about Jesus' divinity and his incarnation. His divinity, meaning he is God, and his incarnation, meaning he is calm in flesh. It says this, John 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word is Jesus. John is telling us that Jesus existed before all things, and he was both God and was God. We celebrate this at Christmas, right? We sing songs that have the word Emmanuel in it, which means what? God with us. Colossians talks about Jesus being the image of the invisible God. You see, with Jesus, we see an entirely different way of relating to God. It's a life with him, not over, not under, not for, and not from as the main purpose. The main one is a life with God. From this scripture and in John 1 and from a lot of different scriptures that we have in the New Testament and in our scripture, we get this theological doctrine of the Trinity. 
which talks about the both not really fully able to comprehend reality that God exists in three persons and all three are, are equally God, that they relate to one another in perfect unity, that we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one God eternally existing in three people. And there's so much more to the Trinity that, but I think to have an understanding of what it looks like to have a posture of a life with God, we need to have a basic understanding of the Trinity. Because if you pull back before the beginning of time, before all of creation, before even here when John says, in the beginning was the word, if you pull back the physical and metaphysical realities of time and space and you look at the center and foundation of all things, what you see is relationship. We find God existing in eternal relationship with himself. The life with God posture recognizes that relationship is at the core of the cosmos. And this idea of relationship I know is familiar. And it may even be really, really cliche. And now there's a, a video went out about how many years ago, I don't know, it talks about this idea of pursuing a relationship with Jesus over religion. And there's some really good, good things in that video. And so to pursue a life with God in relationship to him, it's more than just reading Bible for 15 minutes a day. It's more than just asking him for help with our struggles. It's more than just attending church or Oasis regularly. You see, we shouldn't be surprised that the God of the universe who desires to restore a broken relationship with his humanity, a broken relationship that was caused by sin, we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus was sent, that God was sent to become human. In John 1.14, it says, the word became flesh, Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So to restore all things, God sent Jesus to dwell among his people. It wasn't, a set of specific rules and rituals that you had to accomplish to get back in right relationship with God. It wasn't an execution of certain principles that are tried and tested that you know have outcomes that you can predict and control. It wasn't a genie to grant every wish of your selfish desire. And as great as the global mission of making disciples is, it wasn't giving a specific assignment to accomplish. It was the word, Jesus becoming flesh and being dwell, dwelling among his people. So what is a life with God, a posture of a life with God? It's knowing God and being known by him. And we see this all throughout the New Testament through scripture, even in John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God is in closest relationship with the father. Jesus Christ, who's the only one has seen him, has made God known. A life with God is one of pursuing knowing God and being known by him. He says in John 17, this is eternal life, that they, Jesus is praying, that they know you and then he talks to himself in the third person, says, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not salvation being a punch ticket so that I don't have to go to hell. Eternal life is not something to be experienced later. 
It's a reality of an opportunity that God wants to be known and has invited us to know him. And it's not about accomplishing specific tasks that are actually really, really good because in Matthew 7, Jesus says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. You see, a life with God is an invitation into an intimate, vibrant relationship to know and to be known by the triune God. And, and this idea of knowing biblically is not just intellectual comprehension. It's a part of that. That's a part of what it means to be known. To, be, to know biblically refers to an intimate relationship with God. This is why we exist. Life with God, made available through the person and God himself, Jesus Christ. That's our purpose. Don't miss it. And then from that flows everything else. So to enter into a discipleship process of a private relationship with God is to recognize that my purpose and why I exist is he's invited me into a relationship that's been existing since all eternity to experience the goodness and fullness of life and love that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit has to offer. So what happens when we take this posture of a life with God? One, our treasure and our goal changes, right? If I take one of these postures, it's my goal is something that God didn't originally design for me. So these all say that I use God for a specific reason. But a life with God says my treasure and goal is God, to know and to be known. Dallas Willard, who's a brilliant, brilliant theologian, pastor. Um, Brennan just texted me about this, this guy earlier this week. He's, he's a, a smart, smart man, smarter than I will ever be. Says it better than, than I think the way I could say it about what it, what it means that we can experience this treasure now, that we can experience a life with God now. He says this, this, the treasure we have in heaven is also something very much available to us now. So it's not just something that we wait for, that when I die, I get to have and the reward of, of God, of, of being with Jesus is finally available in my hands. He's saying, no, it's available to us right now. He says, we can and should draw on it as needed, for it is nothing less than God himself and the wonderful society of his kingdom, even now interwoven in my life. Even now, we have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless angels, and to the assembled church of those born earlier and now claimed in the heavens, and to God who discerns all, to the completed spirits of righteous people, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new agreement. This is not by and by, which means eventually, but it's now. What is most valuable for any human being without regard to an afterlife is to be a part of this marvelous reality, God's kingdom now, life with God. Eternity is now ongoing. I am now leading a life that will last forever. Is God your treasure? Is he your goal? To know and be known? Or are you using him? Are you hiding from God? Is it easy to forget about him? Are you afraid of God? What is your treasure? Because once our treasure has been reoriented to living a life with God, that he himself is our reward, 
our very great reward. Once we have this goal, all of a sudden, how we experience God now changes. The relationship now looks different. And our posture of a life with God changes not only how we view life, it's how we go to church. It's how I view people. It changes the pursuit of spiritual disciplines in my life from reading scripture to journaling to pursuing silence and solitude and Sabbath. It changes how I think about fasting and why I would press into it. And all those things I just listed were spiritual disciplines that we pursue, not as an end in of themselves, not to check off a list to say I did this, but they are a means to pursue an end goal of living a life with God that is helping in our relationship, growing in intimacy and vibrancy of the one true triune God. But most specifically and especially, I think it changes how we view and define prayer. The gospels talk a lot about Jesus going away to pray. When the disciples, like one of the, they ask a lot of questions, but they don't ask Jesus ever how to fast. They don't ask Jesus how to preach. They don't necessarily ask Jesus how to cast out demons or perform certain miracles. The thing we know for sure that they ask is they ask Jesus, teach us how to pray. And so the prayer that Jesus taught them is the Lord's prayer that we know of. But this prayer is more than just a list of statements and requests offered up to God. You see, the way that Jesus teaches the Lord's prayer and how he views it and the posture of a life with God sees prayer as communion with God, not merely communicating with God. And I don't know about you guys, but for a long time in my life, I've talked about prayer, I've thought about prayer as this thing that is just, and I've heard it taught, that it's just communication, right? Where it's, prayer is really, really great, which it is, but I've seen it more as a spiritual discipline than a lifestyle. And so what I've seen prayer as is I talk to God and God talks to me and I listen to God and I recognize that God listens to me as well. But prayer is something more. The way that Jesus lives his life, he lived in constant communion with the Father even when he didn't use words. It moves prayer and our posture of a life with God moves from mere communication to a beautiful reality of constant communion that never ends, that keeps going. Mother Teresa was once interviewed by an anchor named Dan Rather, super famous guy from CBS in 1980. And she was interviewed by him, and and, because it's Mother Teresa, Dan Rather asked, so when you pray to God, what do you say? And she says, I don't say anything, I just listen. And so he's like taken back a little bit, and and he asks then, okay, well, when, when you pray, what does God say to you? And she said, God doesn't say anything, he just listens. And then she says a statement that I kind of get, and I'm going to try to explain, but I also don't at the same time. She says this, she says, if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. Because for her, prayer was something more than just communication. It was a lifestyle of communion with God. And so did she have moments where she prayed and asked and petitioned and requested and praised? Yes. But prayer was something bigger. To me, I think Mother Teresa took the posture of Jesus and a life with God, recognizing that prayer is a continual thing of communion with the creator of all things. And is it communication? Yes. That's a part of it. But more importantly, it's continual communion 
in relationship with the triune God. And this communion view of prayer is what Paul talks about when he says, pray without ceasing. It's a call to live as Jesus lived in constant connection with communion with God, even when no words are exchanged. And here's a little bit of, of what this looks like. This idea of prayer without ceasing, of, of communion in prayer. There's a way of ordering our mental life on more than one level. And here's, here's what I mean by that. We have the like external affairs of, the, of our life, right? It's, it's the discussions I'm having. It's if I'm serving in a church, it's those moments that I'm serving. It's listening to the people that I'm in relationship with. It's calculating like certain decisions that I know that like I need to make. It's meeting all the demands of the external realities of what we come across in life. But then deep within, behind the scenes of our soul and our heart, at a profounder level, we may also at the same time as we do those, be in prayer and adoration, song and worship, and have a gentle receptiveness to divine breathings of God speaking and listening. You see, the secular world today values and cultivates only the first level, believing this is where the real business of mankind happens in the external affair. But we know as followers of Jesus that the deep level of prayer is the most important thing in the world. It is at this deep level that the real business of life is determined. Does that not sound like Jesus? Who is able in a conversation with the disciples talking about who's going to be the greatest to immediately in a moment go from talking to them to talking about them to encouraging them to immediately go right into prayer. In John 17, he prays this beautiful prayer. And here's how this is possible. He operated at both levels both the external levels of everyday life while engaging with the reality of communing with God because he sought after and he planned times of solitude, of silence, and stillness. He put himself in situations and he had rhythms in his life when those two levels could be condensed to one. Our goal is a life with God. Recognize that we've been invited into an intimate, vibrant relationship with the triune God. In that, we are intentional in seeking out stillness and solitude and quiet. We seek out opportunity to hear and read who God says he is and who he says we are. Not to make a checklist to say, I've read my Bible today but to enter into a discipleship moment every time we have those moments to be spiritually formed in the image of Christ because that will happen, but to pursue growing in intimacy with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. When God is our treasure and when we truly have faith in Jesus, that we've been united with him through his life, death, and resurrection, then prayer all of a sudden ceases to be a duty and it becomes our joy because it's how we experience our treasure now. So how do we move from recognizing or, or living a life where prayer is just communication to actual communion? I'm gonna give you three things. And this is kind of the how we go about pursuing this private relationship with God and entering this process of discipleship. There's so much more than what I'm gonna say, but this is just the simple, the simple steps that we can pursue. Number one, you pray and you're praying with scripture. And there's going to be, you can go right immediately to that next slide, Shannon. Five ways to go about doing this. I'm going to just talk through them really quickly. So to go from merely communicating to actually enjoying communion with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we pray with Scripture. First and foremost, we have to read it. 
right? And so it's reading it aloud. It's reading it with the intention to engage the text in reflection with an awareness of God's presence, which means for a lot of us, we need to slow down. Praying with scripture is not about quantity, it's about quality. And so be okay telling yourself, I only read two verses today. Because in intentionality and praying with scripture, you've given yourself opportunity to grow in communion with God. You reread the same text and wait for a word or phrase to pop out at you that speaks to you in some way. The next step is you meditate on it. And in meditating, what you do is you invite God to speak and reveal what he desires to impart to you through what the text is saying. This morning, I was reading John 5, and I actually read a devotional by Eugene Peterson. It's called Praying with Jesus. And in and, and that was John 5, and the main verse that he pointed out was John 5, 24. And in that, it said, along the lines, I didn't memorize it. It said, blessed are those who hear your words, who believe the one who sent you, for they have received eternal life and have crossed over from death to life. And I really was like, that's huge. And so I sat there and I said, okay, God, what are you trying to say here? And for some reason, the word crossed over just kept sitting in my soul. All right, what does that mean, God? That, that, that they've crossed over from death to life. And so I started speaking, which is the next step. I was starting to communicate to God my thoughts, my questions, what was happening in my heart. And I was doing this, I think it helps to do it out loud, personally. You can do it in the stillness of your soul. I think it helps to do it out loud. Maybe it's gratitude for you, confession, worry, or joy. For me, it was gratefulness that he's allowed me and us to cross over from death to life. And then you contemplate. And this is, you use the time that you have left in that moment of pursuing stillness and silence uh, in, in growing in intimacy with the Father, with, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. You use the time and you open yourself up to, to hear what God has to say about what he's revealed to you. Maybe it's, you need to hear his forgiveness for you. Maybe you need to hear assurance of identity. You are a son or a daughter. And the last one is ruminating. Then you take that word, that phrase, what God spoke to you, and you carry it with you throughout the day. And as you carry it with you throughout the day, stuff's happening in the depths of your soul, even as you're getting stuff done. And it becomes almost a prompt for praise and worship, for encouragement, for yourself, and then potentially even for other people. You pray with scripture. The second part is you prayers with the church. There's a pattern in church history of pausing three times a day to pray. The Jews did this. They'd go to the temple three times a day and they would read the Psalms. Daniel practiced this in Babylon when he was in captivity and got thrown into the lion's den. And it's continued throughout church history, even eventually with Christian books being written for us. And then some of these, one is it's called the, the Book of Common Prayer that's kind of hard to navigate. There's something that a lot of people I know read uh, called Morning and Evening with Charles Spurgeon. I like to do what I call this, the Praying With series by Eugene Peterson. And every morning, there's a, a scripture that I read. It's a couple verses, and it gives a prayer into it. I read Praying With Jesus in the morning. I read Praying With the Psalms in, in the, in, at lunchtime. And then at night, I read something from the Gospel of Luke. And I maybe at most read 10 verses a day. And this is just a season of life I'm in. There have been moments where I've crushed and read a ton of scripture. And there have been moments where that's been really good. But I feel like when I slow down and have consistent times throughout my day, it's allowed me to stay focused and almost recalibrate my mind back 
to God. And so three advantages of, of having like a devo like this of, and why it's called praying with the church. It's you recognize that you're reading words and prayers that other people are also reading, even if you don't read it with them. So three advantages I'm gonna go through real quick. One, it recalibrates our mind and soul back to God in the midst of the craziness of our day. And a lot of this, a lot of you guys have this rhythm already in your life of praying before meals. What I'm asking is, what does it look like to be more intentional in that moment? To maybe take something like, you don't have to, but maybe open the scripture, read a psalm. Pray through that before your meal. You can go back and do the normal, like, traditional prayers that you're used to praying. But I'm just saying, like, what does it look like to recalibrate your mind and soul back to God in the crazy world? One, it rem- and number two, it reminds us that we cannot and should not separate our union with God from our union with his people. I don't know how many times I got to say our faith is not an individual one, it's a communal one. It brings me back to, uh, there's a, a devotional I do sometimes. I did it last year. I'll probably do, do it again next year called Ancient Christian Devotionals. And it gives me an Old Testament reading in the morning and then some theological thought behind it and then a prayer. And then it gives me a, a gospel reading in the afternoon and then a early church acts or a letter from Paul reading at night. And as I do that, what I'm reading and not just the scripture, I'm reading Christian like theologians who have put time and prayer, who are church fathers of our faith and reading what they wrote. So it not only connects me with the church today, it connects me with the church from the beginning of time when the church started in Acts. And then number three, it teaches me to pray and it teaches me to believe. It increases my faith. Pray with the church. We have some devos that come out and Devo prayer books. One's called, I mean, Our Daily Bread. And I look at this and I think, man, that's super old and weird. You know how many Christians read this every single day? It's connecting and praying with the church. It gives an indicator and it gives a starting point to be able to connect. Last one, praying with the Holy Spirit. And I cannot go into this team, worship team, you guys can come up. And here's the reason I'm not going to go fully into this one is because Brennan started this new thing called Going Deeper. And if you are connected to our socials, he started this uh, last I mean, last week, obviously. And he had about a 10-minute video. And so my going deeper for this week is I'm going to lead whoever wants to watch it through what's called the examine prayer. And so praying with the Holy Spirit does this. And using the examine prayer specifically, it's a prayer, it's a practice of discernment which celebrates and enhances our awareness of and response to God. It gives our daily contemplative experience of God real bite into all our daily living. It is an important means to finding God in everything and not just in the time of formal prayer. And this last one, of, this is why the exam of prayer, of praying with the spirit in this specific way is important. It says, this is a way to create holy space in which to carry on a holy conversation. The exam of prayer is not about figuring out what God is doing in our lives. Rather, it invites God to show us what God is already doing in our lives. And so if you see those words, you can write them down, but there's going to be a video coming out in the next two or three days to walk us through this exam and prayer of what it looks like. It can be, it's a 15-minute practice at the end of every day, inviting God in, reviewing your day. Where'd you experience his loving goodness? So I want to give you some time now, very quick, and we're going to go into worship as we close out. To just sit. <laughs> I, I talked a lot. I read some scripture. But you have a personal a private, intimate relationship with God that he's invited you into. And so take this moment and maybe it's gratitude that you feel. Maybe for some of you, it's frustration 
and you feel like you just haven't been connecting with God in a way that you desire or want to. Maybe for some of you like me, you got some clarity on like, man, prayer's not just communicating about talking and listening, but there's a lifestyle prayer that I'm invited into to actually commune with God every aspect of every day. Maybe some of you are (laughs) convinced, encouraged to start setting up rhythms in your daily, weekly, monthly, seasonal life to get still, to be silent because it's in those moments that we learn to recognize God's voice. It's in those moments that as we recognize God's voice, we can go out into the craziness of the day and still be able to recognize his voice. So take a few moments and pray what's on your heart. Maybe you just need to sit and listen and be silent. Maybe you need to ask God for the first time in your life to join in communion with him. And that's very simple. You admit and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that through his life, death, and resurrection, he has paid for your sin, that God has forgiven you, and you now wanna turn your life around and live a life with him. And from a life with him, you will experience intimate, vibrant growth. You will experience the fruit of the spirit of joy and peace, of love and kindness, patience, gentleness, and self-control, faithfulness. I don't know what's on your heart, but spend some time with God and then we'll close in worship. Father, we thank you for this moment. Almighty God, we thank you that you move and work in ways that we can't even think or imagine. It's greater than anything we could come up with. Thank you that you've been moving since before the beginning of time, moving in ways in our souls and our hearts to get us to this moment, to help us recognize and understand that you've invited us into a vibrant relationship with you, that that's why we exist. And from that, we help others enter into that relationship as well. Thank you for how you've empowered us. Thank you for how you encourage us. Thank you for how you move within us. In Jesus' name.